Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Donald Barclay will join us to discuss disinformation. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, we live in the information age, but in the information age, there's misinformation and more pernicious disinformation. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Donald Barclay. Mr. Barclay is the Deputy University Librarian at the University of California, Merced. He has authored numerous articles and books over the course of his career on topics ranging from the literature of the American West to library and information science. He has penned the new book, Disinformation, the Nature of Facts and Lies in the Post-Truth Era. Mr. Barclay, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Well, this is certainly, I think, a very timely book, today's day and age. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, I had written the fake news book, which came out of the events leading up to the 2016 election when fake news was just everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. And as the discussion was going on, I found myself thinking, well, I'm a professional librarian. I've been one since 1990. During that time, I spent a lot of my time teaching students how not just to find information and to use it, but to think about the credibility of information. That was an easier job in 1990 than it was in 2020 or 2022. So that led me to write Fake News Book, which I saw as a kind of a how-to book. How do you do your best to try to assess the credibility of information? And, and you know, the idea being that most information is on a spectrum of completely non-credible to completely credible, and most of it is neither on, on neither end of the spectrum, it's somewhere in between. So how do you figure out where information lies and make the best use of information to make the best possible informed decisions you can make? And I imagine Fake News as a book that the average person might be interested in, but also might be used as a textbook in college classes or high school classes. So it was more practical an approach. And then after I wrote that, I to thinking about the issue meant from maybe a more philosophical perspective. And that led to writing disinformation, which is not so much a, a how-to book, but more of a, a how-come. And I don't pretend like I've come up with some grand unified theory about why the information landscape is so fraught in the information age. I don't believe there's one answer to it, but I've, I've come up with some, I think, pretty good ideas about what may be driving a lot of the disagreement and polarization and, and basic inability for people to agree on, well, this is a fact or not a fact. How did we get to this position? Is it just the overload of information or is it now that there's so much information that anyone can find the support that they want to support their position? Well, definitely information overload is part of it. And the fact is that there are so many voices out there, which can be a really good thing. And one of the chapters I write about in the book is about how in the early development of the internet and its technology, it was a very optimistic attitude. And, and you go back and you read what some of the pioneers of the internet were imagining, 
And it was mostly very optimistic that, oh, we're going to make all this information available and we're going to, it's going to make people able to access more information and everybody can have a voice and it's going to make for a better world because people will make informed decisions and it will help break the stranglehold of propaganda because the gatekeepers, whether you know it's the government or the corporations or the library, won't have a stranglehold on in the information you can access. And it was, it was a very optimistic point of view. But so as time goes on, one of the things that, of course, happened with the Internet starting in the 1994 was kind of a big turning point. What had been a basically a playground for academics, scientists, engineers and faculty members, librarians, that was the Internet got it was the NSFNet became accessible to everybody. So that was really a goal was to make this resource available. But then what we've kind of morphed into is a world where some of the people who created the Internet they're being interviewed and they're saying, I wish we'd never done it. <laughs> it was a mistake <laughs> because the internet, as, as you know, is become a chief source for attacking science and attacking higher education. And, you know, you can literally go online and find people saying, you know, science is, and technology has never done anything good for us. And all government projects are, are stupid and terrible. And they're using the internet, which was a government project for decades, a tax funded government academic research project, and they're using it to attack this idea that, that there is a contribution of science and government and higher education. So it hasn't worked out the way people thought it would. And so are there all these voices and people can pick and choose? And of course, we've, we all know about echo chambers and the idea that you can go online and just hear people who agree with your leftist point of view or your conservative point of view or your middle of the road point of view or your boomer point of view or your Gen Z point of view. And you can find all these, these narrow communities. And of course, you can try to if you use Facebook, you can block people because you just don't want to hear their, their BS anymore. And, and that can be very limiting, of course. And then there are governments and corporations who are very strategically and intentionally using the internet to promote propaganda. So it hasn't really freed people from propaganda as much as it's created a new avenue for it. And an example I can use is I just saw an advertisement on Facebook yesterday, and it was aimed at Californians saying, the state assembly is getting ready to pass a law that would incorporate zero bail, at least for nonviolent crimes, basically eliminate bail as a condition for being released when you've been charged with a crime. And it was saying, you know, you've got to stop your legislators from passing this law because it'll create, you know, chaos and violence and it'll make California worse. Call your legislator and stop them. Well, that may be a true argument. Maybe that would be the result of a no bail situation. I'm not I'm not trying to weigh in on whether no bail is good or bad. I looked up the people who were sponsoring it. And oh, lo and behold, it's the bail bond industry, the people who make money from there being a bail system. So clearly they have a motivation there that's not just about public safety, although public safety may be part of it. They're clearly coming at it from a, a money point of view. So again, my, my point is it's opened up all these other avenues where people with money interests and political interests and cultural interests to try to shape the way we think. It's just a reality of, of what we're dealing with. Another thing that I think may be happening with digital information is that back in the 60s, you had people like Marshall McLuhan, especially, going around talking about electronic media and how it was changing the way people think. And McLuhan was specifically talking about television. And McLuhan died in 1980. So he didn't live to see 
the digital revolution really unfold. So he was talking about te broadcast television, basically, and to a lesser extent, radio. And he was saying, it's changing the way we're thinking. We're moving from a world based on print that we've been living in for roughly 500 years to a new world based on these electronic communications. There's going to be some changes and they may not all be good. Then you have, after him, Walter Ong, who was basically a disciple in a way of McLuhan, coming on and saying, we're moving into a secondary orality, a world beyond print. And now, more recently, we hear people talking about Gutenberg parenthesis, and there's scholars who are saying, yeah, we've, we've moved beyond the age of the written word into a new kind of world where we haven't thrown away writing, obviously, because, for example, tweet. Tweets are a very secondary orality kind of communication. They're very short, they're kind of transient, they are very interactive, but they're written, but they're very different than sitting down and writing a book or an article. And the example I would use is, is Donald Trump. He was a master of, of Twitter before he was banned. And it's really easy to imagine Donald Trump writing a whole bunch of tweets in a day and people responding to them and Donald Trump choosing to respond or not respond to people who are liking what he's saying or not liking what he's saying. And the people who see those responses are responding to each other. And it becomes very interactive in a way that you don't get in a printed word article or book. By the same token, it's hard to imagine Donald Trump sitting down and writing a 10,000 word piece on climate change or immigration or any other topic. That's not what he did. He's, he's, to my mind, a real secondary reality kind of communicator. So we may be experiencing this change very much like when print came in and changed what was mostly an oral culture to a written culture. We may be experiencing that. And it's not going to happen to everybody at the same time. It's not like I'm saying, well, on October 22nd, we're all going to switch into a post-literate secondary reality world. But we may be experiencing a slow, gradual change because of digital technology, because it's changed the ground rules for how we communicate, could create a lot of disruption in how we think and how we act. And some things may be, there may be some really good things about it. And, you know, one way of thinking about it is something like hip hop music, very secondary orality. It's flowing, it's flexible. There's a lot of collaboration. It's very common in, in hip hop music to see multiple artists contributing. It's not like a Stephen King story where it's by Stephen King. It's got his name on it. He's the contributor. You know, you, you see a hip hop song and there's lots of different people contributing and they're using sampling from other, often older works, a real different kind of communication. And so that's, you know, hip hop music is great. It's very secondary rally. It's maybe an example of something good that's coming out of secondary rally. But there could also be some really negative things coming out of it. If people to too much of an extent go, ah, eh, all that written stuff and all that science and all that research, that doesn't really mean anything anymore. That's old stuff. We're just going to go with our gut here and with our flowing, fast-paced, interactive communication. It's a lot more fun for us because this is how we're thinking now. But that's sort of an idea of how the actual technology itself may be changing our cognition to the secondary orality world. One of the threads that you mentioned in the book is that as humans have a cognitive setup, a certain propensity to believe the technology in a way is playing on those facets of our human cognition to amplify, maybe solidify different points of view, but in those silos, those echo chambers. And that's what the technology facilitates unintendedly in a way. Yeah, we all have cognitive biases and hundreds of them and everybody has them. And a lot of them are a result of our evolutionary development. 
if you're living on the savannah 100,000 years ago, making snap judgments was really important. Snap judgments about threats because you might get eaten by something if you don't make the judgment quick enough. And waiting around to analyze it was not a good survival strategy. So we have those built-in tendencies. But in an age where information is so important and so much of our decisions really should be made on the best possible information, understanding that no information is perfect, it's all created by humans, but using the best possible information for our decisions. And where very few of our decisions are life or death within a few seconds to decide what to do. We don't run into those kind of decisions very often. But snap decisions and going with your gut and, and your cognitive biases, whatever they may be, to decide important questions with long-term ramifications for the world, and climate change is an example, that's maybe not the best way to do that, to maybe really get best information, not only to, to think about, you know, okay, is climate change really happening? Well, there seems to be a lot of evidence that says it is. So that's one question to ask. But then maybe the most important question is, if climate change is happening and it's a real threat to humanity and the world, what's the best way to approach it? Is it carbon credits? Is it alternative energy? Is, is it doing work with the soil to retain more carbon in the soil? You know, what, what's the best and most practical solution? And that's not something you're going to decide based on your gut feeling, on your cognitive bias about whatever it is that's driving you, your fears or your hopes or your, your predilection. So again, that, that's just an example of, of why digital technology can appeal to these cognitive biases in our, and what the psychologist and Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman refers to as heuristics, which are shortcuts that help us make decisions. And those decision-making shortcuts often work really well in our day-to-day lives. So we rely on them, assess the situation. You know, I'm going to walk down a dark street in a strange city, and there's an alley on one side of the street, but on the other side, there's no alley. Maybe I'll walk on the non-alley side because nobody's going to jump out at me, right? And that's that's a, a decision that we make maybe quickly, and holistically, and it's probably a good decision for that situation, but it's not a great decision for complicated matters with long-term implications. Then it's better to, to really understand and get more information. And that's hard to do because, again, there's so much information. How do you make sense of what's really useful and what's not? It's a, it's a big ask of people. And so I, th- I think there is a temptation to fall back to our gut feelings, to go with our heuristics and our shortcuts instead of really thinking about the facts of the situation as best they can be ascertained. There's a famous example of when Eisenhower was running for president, he was approached by basically advertising people who told him, look, you, you need to really use TV. And Eisenhower was, okay, we can use television. He says, but here's what you have to do. You have to create these really short 30-second advertisements that kind of appeal to people's basic ideas. And Eisenhower's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. That's, that's not good because people really need to think about the facts. But these advertising people convinced Eisenhower and, and the people who were helping him, oh, no, this is the way TV works. You've got to do these little things. And Eisenhower reluctantly went along. And so they would have these little commercials, like Ike, I like Ike. And they would interview a person on the street saying, yeah, I, you know, I want the economy to be better. And I think Eisenhower can make the economy better. I mean, real simple stuff. And those were the ads he ran. Adlai Stevenson, who, of course, ended up losing to Eisenhower, bought 30-minute blocks of time and basically sat in his library of his house explaining policy at length to viewers. <laughs> and that's not how TV works. <laughs> and so that's an example of how electronic media, starting with TV, but even more so in the digital age, it really appeals to our short attention spans and things like TikTok and short YouTube videos and 
Twitch and things like that are appealing to that kind of shortened attention span. How do we get out of it? Is there a way? Or as you said, it's sort of a big ask for people to now try and digest this information. What do you recommend for people trying to sort out truth from fiction? Uh, well, it's not easy. And, and I think we, we might be in for some rough sailing for a while if we really are going through a transition till we learn better how to manage the world. And, and you know, if you look back at the, at the development of printing for movable type in Europe, it took a while, but roughly about 100 years after the first books were being printed, printing for movable type had driven down the cost of books a lot and increased the number of books many, many times over, thousands of times over. So books were cheaper and more plentiful. People were able to access them. And you saw a lot of turmoil coming out of that, the Protestant Reformation, the scientific revolution. Some of it, you could say, was good. Some of it was bad. Certainly, there was a lot of conflict. Uh, a lot of it was real violent. So it was a time of, of a lot of turmoil. And we may be facing with turmoil. You know, and I'm really hoping it's not going to be violent. But you know, one of the things about information is if we are in the information age. And so information has become really valuable in much the same way that in the industrial age, raw materials cotton, rubber, coal, iron ore became super valuable. And countries, especially European countries, were really quite willing to go to other countries with soldiers and say, we're taking your stuff <laughs> because it's valuable. And so we're seeing information becoming valuable. So as it becomes more valuable, the ability to control it and use it becomes the equivalent of controlling and using natural resources. And we know how far people will go to control natural resources, both you know, in past times and still today. It's not like natural resources are not important because they are. But the value of information means that we as people have to start doing a better job of recognizing, okay, this is a valuable commodity. This has power to control things and to control the way the world works to an extent that maybe it didn't before. So we need to think of it as a commodity of value and to as best we can try to remember that people, whether for good reasons or bad, intentionally or unintentionally, are trying to control our access to it and control our perception of it. And for us to think as clearly as we can before we start accepting things as true. And that, that's a big ask. I, I don't know that there's an easy answer to it. Maybe it's possible that developments in artificial intelligence will help us control information better. But the other side of that coin is artificial intelligence might make it easier for people to use information against us and to control how we think about information. So that's, that's a real danger, too. I don't have a, a real easy answer. I think the, the most important thing we could try to ask people to do is be aware that we are, are in a new, a new realm of information here and a new way of, of thinking about information because of its value, because of its prevalence, because of the tools we have developed to share information for better or worse. And we need to think very carefully about how we respond to it. Because, you know, all of us, it's, it's really easy to get down a path because of the information we read. And the two really obvious examples are things that make us afraid and things that make us angry, which are kind of related things that we can really easily fall into a spiral when we start getting angry and getting afraid. And, you know, I, I uh, a news feed on my phone that I, I stopped following, I quit using it because I realized everything that was showing up on there was stuff that either made me mad or made me scared. And I think that in a way it was using algorithms to push that stuff out. I mean, because that's how it got me to respond. 
things that made me angry and scared, I was more likely to look at, which is what, of course, the purveyors of information want. They want you to look at it because that's how they make their money. It's advertising based. And every time you click on something, they make money. So anything they can do to, con- to get you to do that is to their benefit. And so we have to remember that people are manipulating us in that way. And we're all susceptible to us. And I'm, you know, I consider myself a very savvy person when it comes to information. I'm, I'm really careful about it. But even I can go down that path very easily. And I, I, I know I'm susceptible to being manipulated. And we all need to remember that. And we all need to think about you know, the fact that who is benefiting from this? Cui bono is the Latin term. Who benefits? Who's making money? Who's getting power based on us describing to, following, accepting this information? Whether it's commercial advertising, whether it's political advertising, whether it's all of these free services on the internet, and you know this has become a truism, but if you're accessing digital information and you're not paying for it, you become the commodity. You are the thing of value there because you're following it is, is paying for advertising, making advertising possible that makes the information possible. So we, we have to be really careful about how we feed these beasts. And sometimes that means not going down that path. It means not following the algorithms and the, the, the bean counting. It doesn't care whether you're following something ironically, whether you're following it because you love it or whether you're following because you hate it. All it cares about is that you're following it. And if you do that, you're feeding the beast. And we need to remember that we, we do have the power to turn off those beasts. You know, you know the, the old, any publicity is good publicity. When we go online and we, we criticize, you know, maybe some website personality or podcast host that we think is terrible. When we go online and, and call for them to be canceled, we're really in a way feeding them and giving them power because we're giving them attention. There's a famous, uh, well, I don't know how famous it is, but there's an old Simpsons episode where all the advertising symbols in the town of Springfield come to life and they're wrecking havoc. And Lisa, who's the voice of reason in The Simpsons, tells everybody, if we just quit paying attention to them, they'll go away. And everybody turns their back on the advertising symbols and they all fall over and lose their power. And that's kind of simple and, and maybe somewhat silly example. But we do, have, we do have control over these things. We don't have to give our attention. Our attention is dollars. And dollars keep these things flowing. And that's that's what we have to remember. Curious if you have any final words regarding your book, Disinformation. I hope, of course, I hope a lot of people read it because why? Because I get money and power when people read my book. You know, I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm out there hyping what I think. And if people pay attention to me and pay attention to my book, I benefit from it. I, I'm not making millions or anything close to that. But I still have that hook in the game. And I don't claim that I have all the answers. I do think I hit on some things that I think are pretty true and I think people will find interesting. I talk some about the history of the internet and how it got created and some of the ideas. I think a lot of people might find that of interest because the history of the internet is not something that we hear a lot about or you know, it doesn't show up on the History Channel very much, but it's a fascinating subject and there's a lot to learn about it. And understanding that history, I think, helps us get a better understanding of, of where we are now. So that's my, my final words. All right. We were just talking with Mr. Donald Barclay. The new book is Disinformation, The Nature of Facts and Lies in the Post-Truth Era. Mr. Barclay, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Bye.